Tonight, we will have the opportunity at the end of our service to observe uh, the Lord's Supper together. What a wonderful ordinance that's been given by our Lord to proclaim the gospel and do in remembrance of him until he returns. But as we seek to prepare our hearts for that and, um, and, and observe this together, I invite you to take your Bible and turn back again to the book of Haggai. We have spent quite a few weeks in this little book, this little um, minor prophet near the end of the Old Testament. And tonight, uh, we will be looking at Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 14, or 10 through 19, and see this topic here as we talk about the only cure for defilement as God comes once again to the people there living in Jerusalem as he's challenged them in, in their failure to rebuild the temple. That was the first message, was a reminder that God's work must be put first because the people had no time for God. They, they had time to do a whole lot of other things. They made excuses to not serve God. And so God called his people to action. Uh, he, he sought to rouse them. And we saw that the way they responded in the end of chapter 1 was to do those things. And then the last time we were in Haggai, we saw God's encouragement of his people uh, there at the beginning of chapter 2, and, and he talked about the coming glory of the temple and how one day these things would be fulfilled and, and his blessing poured out on them. And so now God comes again through his prophet to speak to the people about the problem that they have in their hearts. And we find this here in Haggai chapter 2, verses 10 through 19, as God speaks on that and the cure that they have in him. It says, on the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priest concerning the law, saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, or with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. And now carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of twenty ephahs, there were but ten. And one came to the wine vat to draw out fifty baths from the press, there were but twenty. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord." Consider now from this day forward, from the 24th day of the ninth month, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit, but from this day I will bless you. We're going to see in this passage tonight what God says about the only cure for defilement. And, and one of the things you, you, you've seen probably in your own life is that sometimes when you're dealing with a problem in your life, you have what we may call options when you're dealing with those problems. Whether it be an equation on your homework, an issue around your home, a medical challenge that needs treatment, 
a relationship misunderstanding or issue and, and other things, you will sometimes be presented with problems in life that have more than one way of handling them. And you may go about handling those problems or solving that in, in one of two, three, sometimes more ways. But other times in life, you will have no such options. The problem in front of you will only have one solution. And if you do not take the route that is the one way to go, you will end up with greater problems, a more difficult life, or incomplete disaster. However, if you embrace the solution that's presented, you will instead find the answer you need, and your life will be all the better for it. And such is the case in the passage before us tonight. God speaks to Israel through Haggai for a third time, showing them their problem of sin and its effects it's having on their lives. His message also reminds the people that the only remedy for sin is to follow him. And upon doing so, they will find healing and the cure for the defilement of their sin. What we see here is sin's effects are pervasive, and the only cure is found in God in a right relationship with him. Sin permeates the world we live in. It permeates the people of this world as we are all born sinners. And so therefore, the effects are so wide-ranging of sin upon this world. And we'll observe that tonight as we talk through the effects of sin that we see in the world that we live in. And the only way to find a cure for sin is through relationship with God. The only way to, to be cleansed from sin is to be right with him. That was true in Haggai's day, right, under the Old Testament law, just as much as it is true today. God may have, have dealt with his people in a different way under the covenant of the law, but, but that was still what was needed was a right relationship of one's heart with God. And it's true today through Jesus Christ. And so here, as we see Haggai coming to the people once again, we see in verses 10 through 14 that, that, that there is a, some statements, some questions, and then some statements that come out of it that we understand then the nature of both holiness and defilement. And those two, holiness and defilement, are juxtaposed against each other in this passage to help us see there is a difference here. And there is a difference not only in what they are, but in how we relate to them and understand them in life. And so it comes, first of all, in verses 10 through 12, with a question that is posed on holiness. Now in verse verse 10 you're going to see, again, a a superscription for the next message from the Lord through Haggai. You read here about when this message took place, and you would understand that that this is just over two months after the last message that Haggai delivered, and it is exactly three months after the work on the temple had begun. And we would know this date. It's recorded here as uh, the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, which In case you haven't calculated that out yet, that's December 18th, 520 B.C. I know some of you were probably already there, okay? But that's where it is, if you want to help understand it in the way we think. So once again, Haggai is delivering God's message to God's people. And this time, it's given in the form of questions. 
It's a question of religious purity. God says, thus says the Lord of hosts, now ask the priests concerning the law. This has to do with religious purity and the laws of God's covenant. So therefore, the question is, is directed to the priests. The priests were vital to the nation of Israel because they helped guide God's people in the proper worship of God. They helped shape the nation's devotion to God. And if they were not right with God, the nation would struggle. As the priests would go, so would God's people. You see that time after time after time. In fact, later in the Old Testament, God would chastise the priests for their mishandling of his worship and how they misled the people. We read in Malachi 2.8, but you have departed from the way. He's talking to the priest. You have caused many to stumble at the law. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. One of the things you need to understand is that anyone in any spiritual leadership role has has to understand that role given to them by God and the ramifications of it. And probably when we think of spiritual leadership, probably one of the first places we think of are pastors, and that certainly is one of the points that we think of. But, but pastors, deacons, teachers, disciplers, parents, just to name a few, all have responsibility before God as those whom God has placed in leadership of another in the way of spiritual things. And if you are in one of these roles, we need to understand that we need to know God's word, study God's word, and obey God's word that we may lead in a godly way. That is what is expected of us, to lead in a way that honors God. And so here, God poses questions to the spiritual leadership of Israel that they may understand and teach others the nature of holiness and the nature of defilement or uncleanness to other people. Understanding God's expectations and God's definitions are vital to properly worshiping and serving God. Let's talk about for just a second, I mean, why is it that God asks the questions the way he does here? Does God not know the answers to the questions he's asking? A lot of you look at me like, I'm not sure, okay? God knows the answers, okay? God knows the answers, but why is he asking it? He's asking it to probe the hearts of his people, to help them to understand and reason through these things. You know, quite often, throughout the ministry of Jesus especially, how does Jesus deal with people? He asks a lot of questions because it helps us to understand and to, to see our hearts before him. And so the first question that God poses to the priest deals with this issue of holiness. He says, if, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge, that would be of that garment, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil, or any food, will it become holy? So in this question, God is is presenting the priest with a scenario. Here is someone 
who is leading in the worship of God, who has what we may refer to as, as the holy meat that has been used in the worship of God. And such meat is, is set apart for the worship of the Lord and had to meet specific qualifications. And it also was to be offered in a specific ma- manner. If you look through the book of Leviticus, you would find God's requirements for these animals and then the sacrifices that would involve them. And the book of Leviticus is quite detailed and intricate about those things. So the Lord presents this picture. Here is a, a priest that has, has his garment, and, and the idea of the fold of the garment is he's picked up part of that garment. It's almost like a pocket that he's using. And by the way, that garment that he was wearing would be something that was sanctified and holy and set apart for the worship of God. So he takes the meat that is sanctified and holy and set apart for the worship of God, and he puts it in the garment that's also sanctified and holy, and he's transporting it from one place, presumably in the temple, to another. And the question is that along the way, if that that garment that is transporting that meat touches some other object, it's mentioned here bread, stew, wine, or oil, or just the inclusion of any food, does the thing that the garment touched become holy? Basically, we could ask it this way. Is holiness easily transmittable from one thing to another? Is Maybe another way to say it is, is holiness contagious? And that's a word I don't know if we're allowed to use after 2020, okay? But is holiness contagious? And the answer from the priests in verse 12 is very straightforward. They say what? No. It's not transferable, transmittable. It's not contagious, so to speak. Something or someone does not become holy because it came in contact with something that has been made holy or is set apart in holiness. And so now, God, having received that answer and and his people understanding that side of it, now presents the second question. And we see here a question on defilement or uncleanness in verse 13. Clean... And unclean are big concepts in the law of God. Those are very important concepts in the Old Testament law. Because if you were considered unclean, you could not come and worship God. If your uncleanness was of a certain type, like, say, leprosy, you couldn't even live in the normal community with everyone else. You were ostracized and you had to go around saying, unclean, unclean, and people would stay away from you. So this is a big deal to understand this concept of defilement or uncleanness. And here, the Lord through Haggai presents another scenario. If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, those things that were mentioned before, will it be unclean? So here, here's a person who's come in contact with a dead body, which, according to God's law, would make that person unclean or defiled. And, and there's, there's different ways that this can happen. I mean, someone could, by accident, come in contact with a dead body. Perhaps someone's husband or wife passed away in the night, right? And so you wake up in the morning and, oh, look, you know, they're dead, and you've come in contact with that. Or you came across someone that you didn't know was, was dead. Or it could be purposeful, Right? 
Perhaps someone is, is helping to prepare another person for burial. And so they were helping in that, and so they came in contact with a dead body, which would make someone unclean and defiled. And so here, the question is the same. If one who is unclean and defiled comes in contact with any of the things that were mentioned, will those things become unclean and defiled? Is We could ask it the same way. Is defilement and uncleanness transferable, transmittable, and contagious? And the answer here is different, right? Because the priests say, it shall be unclean. While holiness cannot be transmitted, defilement can be. Indeed, defilement and uncleanness is as contagious as a disease. And so with this distinction being made, God now shows that, that this is what's true. Okay, what you said is true, and so here is the application. Here are the effects that defilement is having or has and has had on God's people and their work in verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, So is this people, and so is this nation before me, says the Lord, and so is every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. We see now in their lives the effects of defilement. This statement we have said many times, but it is no less true the first time you hear it as the tenth time. Sin has consequences. Do you agree with that statement? Sin has consequences. And sin taints every part of our lives. It infects and affects our actions, our motives, our relationships, and it has byproducts in everything we do. Because we are born sinners, we, maybe a way to say it is, is we have become accustomed to sin in our lives. It has always been a part of who we are. What did, what did the psalmist say? In sin did my mother conceive me, right? The idea there is not that it was part of an adulterous relationship, but that since I was born, I am a sinner because I inherited this sin nature from my parents. It is part of who I am. And we must realize that though sin is not unusual and something we are unaccustomed to, it is completely opposite of who God is and it attacks everything that he is. After all, it only took one sin to ruin God's perfectly holy and good creation. When God got to the end of creation, he looked, the Bible tells us, and it was not just good, it was very good. And then you turn the page to Genesis chapter 3, and is it very good anymore? No, it's cursed because of sin. That is what sin does. And so because sin is so tainting and so systematically invasive, we need to be reminded in our lives how deep its effects run in our lives. And so here, Haggai reminds the people that the work they have done in sin taints the work that they do. In verse 14, what he's basically telling the people is, you cannot do the things of God while living in sin. The people were hard at work on the temple, 
God had called them to his work. He had empowered them to do that work, and he encouraged them in that work. But at the end of the day, they had to realize that they had nothing in their lives and nothing in their hearts that they could, by some way, then impart holiness to the temple. The people could not make the temple holy, right? Because they were sinners. Because of their sin, they could not make something holy on their own. What did they need? They needed hearts that were pure and devoted to God, that they may do his work his way. Haggai said at the end of verse 14, and what they offer there is unclean. The people could not even offer sacrifices that were pleasing to God from impure hearts. The sacrifices offered with sinful hearts did not bring honor to God and did not fulfill their intended purposes. And what is God's ultimate goal? The ultimate goal of God is to cleanse the hearts of his people. That's his goal. You think of, go all the way back to Genesis chapter 17, when God introduces the rite of circumcision Right, that set apart the people of God. All of that even was a picture that God wanted to, to, to circumcise the hearts of his people and cleanse them from their sin. It was a picture all along. The outward actions of the Old Testament law were intended to point them to their greatest inward need. It wasn't about doing all this and checking the box and this and that, it was intended to point them to their need for a Savior who could cleanse them from their sin. Might I offer you one more illustration to help us understand this point? If you have children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, others you're close to, perhaps you have pictures like I do that look like this, okay? These, each of these pictures is taken... Um, from our children's first birthdays. And yes, I got their permission to show this blackmail tonight, okay? It really is a wonderful thing as a dad, and by the way, an avid consumer of sweets, to watch my own children discover the awesomeness of chocolate cake. I mean, that is just a wonderful thing, right? And in full one-year-old fashion, you can see from these pictures, my children maybe with the exception of Alyssa, have all worn this cake very proudly, okay? And I want to tell you something, that in this state right here, one-year-olds are very dangerous, okay? Really, they're dangerous. What are they dangerous to? They're dangerous to the carpet, the furniture, the walls, okay? You name it, right? They're dangerous to each one of these things because they're covered in chocolate and frosting. They're just, and they're just itching to move around and spread that chocolatey goodness everywhere. We can say it this way. Everything then that they touch will be affected by the chocolate and the stuff that's on them. And you turn one of these little ones like this loose in your home, you will find the results for weeks. In the same way, you turn your sinful self loose in the world, you're going to see the results. We see it all the time. You turn on the news today, 
you open social media, people are talking about how one year ago today they overturned Roe v. Wade and the president's making a big deal, right, about we need to reinstate that. That's sin, by the way, to murder innocent children. That's what happens when we turn our sinful selves loose in the world. You turn your sin loose, you live in sin in your home, and you're going to see the effects it has on your family. You take your sin into the church and live in it and watch what happens in that church. You you try to do the work of God while not dealing with your sin, and you're going to see the effects. Because that's what sin does. It taints and affects our lives. God will not be honored. Sin will continue to multiply, and you will feel the shame and guilt of your sin in your heart. And you may be able to repress the feelings of guilt for a time, but in your heart you will know the truth. And with our children in this state that you see up here on the screen, we have to introduce an outside element. We call that a bath. Okay? I remember, I mean, I remember all the way back to when Caleb, that picture, I remember that day, right? And I remember we took him upstairs, we put him in the bath, and we had to scrub him head to toe. I think we had to wash him five times, okay? Maybe that's an exaggeration, all right? But even then, the comparison to what Haggai has said continues here. We don't look at our kids when they get out of the bath and say, okay, listen, you have really made a mess in this house. So now you're clean. Go touch everything that you touch and make it clean, right? Go touch the couch and make it clean. Go touch the floor and make it clean. It doesn't work that way, does it? If it did, uh, our houses would be a lot cleaner probably, right? A cleansing effort has to be applied to those things as well. You ever notice it's very easy to get something dirty but comparatively harder to make it clean? Someone else's holiness will not make you holy. You have to deal with sin God's way for yourself. Removing the stain of sin on your life takes divine intervention. It can't come from your family. It can't come from your friends. It can't come from your religious leader. It has to come from God alone as you deal with him directly. And finding cleansing from sin means seeking out God's means of cleansing and embracing that means. And so Haggai continues then to speak on this throughout the rest of the message in verses 15 through 19. We see the results of holiness and defilement in the lives of God's people. And so having illustrated the defiling nature of sin, Haggai goes in reverse order here. He talked about holiness. He had a question about holiness and a question about defilement. Now he's going to go the reverse way here and first give us the punishment for sin or uncleanness of the people. He wants them to consider once again what has transpired. And now, carefully consider from this day forward, from before stone was laid upon stone in the temple of the Lord, since those days when one came to a heap of 20 ephahs, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw out 50 baths from the press, there were but 20. I struck you with blight and mildew and hail, and in all the labors of your hands, yet you did not turn to me, says the Lord. So once again, the people are called to 
to consider or to give careful thought to and evaluate their experiences in light of God's revealed truth. In the days before they began to rebuild the temple, the people had suffered greatly. Haggai again speaks here of how they expected results of their labors and they didn't come to fruition. He talks about the grain harvest that had decreased 50%. He talks about the grape harvest that had decreased 60%. And the people were living in sin. They were sacrificing a right relationship with God in an effort to try to survive and get ahead. Yet try as they might, they couldn't succeed. And once again, God's sovereignty is highlighted in these things. One of the things that God shows time and again through the Old Testament to his people, and the people had to come to recognize, is that God, as the one in control, could bring both blessing or allow a disaster into their lives in judgment. And here, he quite clearly raised his hand in judgment against his people. He talks about how he sent blight, mildew, and hail. And these these diseases and natural disasters wreaked havoc on an agricultural nation of Israel. When you think about a nation that's built on growing crops, raising animals, those sorts of things, and now introduce a little hail, a little mildew, a little blight that strikes these things, that's a recipe for disaster. Yet God says the nation didn't turn. The people continued to do what they had been doing instead of turning to the Lord. And we see again that the purpose of God in discipline is to turn the hearts of his people to himself once again. That is always God's purpose in, in when he disciplines his own. It's not out of spite. It's not out of anger. It's not to get some kind of, of enjoyment. But God disciplines his own to turn their hearts back to himself. Haggai calls for the people then to consider what has happened that they may learn from the past. If God's people will learn these lessons from the past, it will inform their obedience to God in the future. Year after year, it had been the same and no change had come. They had, they had failed to get ahead. They had suffered loss and it It went on time after time after time after time. And even though the results never changed, they kept doing the same things. Well, that's the way it is with sin. You can do the same things over and over again, hoping that it's going to be different this time. But it's not going to be different. The outcome will still be the same. The feelings will still remain The cycle will advance and reset time after time after time. Something must be done to address the situation. Someone must be the agent to see real change affected. And we have to understand that holiness and righteousness are found in one place, and that is in God. And so Haggai now reminds the people what will happen as a result of their obedience, as he closes out this message, was talking about blessing for obedience in verses 18 and 19. Consider now from this day forward, from the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider it, 
Is the seed still in the barn? As yet the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have not yielded fruit. But from this day I will bless you. So Haggai now turns the readers, the listeners, from what has happened in the past to what will happen in the future. As you close the first message in the book of Haggai in chapter 1 there, you find the response of the people. It was a response of obedience. That they jumped into the work of God, which was an act that required them to confess and repent from their sin. It meant they had to acknowledge that what they were doing was wrong and change their actions to do what was right. So Haggai calls for them now, consider your settings and your surroundings. He asks this question in verse 19, is the seed still in the barn? That question anticipates a negative response, that the answer is no. Why? Well, at this point, the people have just finished a new planting season. They've just put all of the seed into the ground. And if it had been a particularly good year, the year before, they would have extra seed left over in the barns for the years to come. But, you know, if you've been paying paying attention as we've gone along, there hadn't been any particularly good years. So there was no seed left in the barn. Everything they had was out in the fields because of those preceding years of crop failure. They planted everything they had, and they just have to hope it'll be enough. And here is a great, the great promise of God through Haggai. It will be enough. Though they have no fruit yet, though they enjoy no extra and no luxuries, that is all about to change. That from this day on, in verse 19, I will bless you. And the, answer, the question is, Why? Why would God now bless them from this day forward? Well, the answer is found in what we just talked about from from the first message. Because of their obedience. Because of the repentance and confession that was involved in that obedience. Because they they turned from their sin and they came back to God. You see, you and I, we cannot cleanse ourselves from sin. You and I, we cannot make our works acceptable to God. We need God's work in us. We need to introduce an outside agent to cleanse us from our sin. David, the greatest king Israel ever had, was also a miserable sinner. And what, after what is perhaps viewed by us as human beings as his greatest sin, we have recorded a prayer of repentance prayed by him. And and, and honestly, we could read all of Psalm 51 tonight, but I wanted to point us to one verse, Psalm 51, verse 2, where David wrote, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. The only way to true holiness is through the work of God. Outward obedience to God comes with this, but it begins in the heart. And sometimes we 
we try to get that backwards. We try to do all the actions and hope that it's going to bring some kind of goodness in our lives. And that's not the way it works. You can't do all the good things and hope that God's going to work it out for you or hope that it balances out in the end. We have to come to God and seek him, and then he works out those things in our lives to draw us closer to himself and to help us to live for him. And a life of consistent disobedience reveals a heart that is not truly changed and is closed to the conviction of God. The Israelites were a hard-hearted people. They were constantly suffering the consequences of their sin. Yet time and again, we see they did not seem to learn from those things. May God give us the grace to be not so minded in our lives. May we be ever open to the conviction of God in our hearts and lives. May we run to God for his cleansing and holiness. May we know the blessing of a right relationship with God. We need this in two places. Number one, we need this in our salvation. We need God to cleanse us from our sin, saving us from eternal damnation and hell. There is no other way. That is the only way to eternity. But then we also need this in our sanctification. We need God's help to live for his glory on a regular basis. We need his conviction when we turn off the path and go into the old ways of sin. We need a a contrite spirit to humble ourselves, to seek forgiveness, and walk in unbroken fellowship and consistent obedience to God. The result of holiness that is found in God is a right relationship with God. And that is truly a blessed life indeed. You can say a lot of things about life. You can have a lot of goals, a lot of lofty things in your life. You say, well, if I do this, if I have this, if I experience this, then I have a pretty good life. And some of those things you would say that I would probably agree with you. There are things in my life that I look at and I say, well, I have a pretty good life because of this and this and this. But the only thing that matters and the only thing that makes life worth living is having a right relationship with God. That's the highest and greatest goal. Sin's effects are pervasive. And the only cure is found in God and a right relationship with him. The only cure for defilement is God. The people of Israel needed to return to the Lord and obey him to enjoy the benefits of holiness. They needed him to cleanse them, for mankind cannot cleanse himself. Today, God's holiness is available to us through the blood of Jesus Christ. At salvation, the blood of Jesus is applied to your account, washing away your sin and crediting to you the righteousness of God. Jesus is the only way to deal with your sin. And as you walk through this life, living in Jesus and for God's glory with God's help is the only way to stay in fellowship with God. When you feel far away from God, When you feel out of step with God and you know something isn't right in your life, remember this, it isn't because God has changed or gone away. It's because you and I have strayed. We've stopped walking with him and are not living in obedience to him.
We need God's help to live in a way that honors and glorifies him and reflects his holiness.